My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. And thank you all for tuning in to the show. We are heading into Luke chapter 11 today. So just going to have a ton of fun with that. Got a long chapter ahead of us. Going to get into the thick of things before we go off to the conference. I'm having a lot of fun. I got to record another episode too later on to prepare because I won't have the time to get things done on that end while I'm there. But we'll be going today through Luke 11, starting with verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Mm, a lot of here. We're going to start with prayer. Prayer is one of the most important parts of a Christian's life. It's undeniable. It is something we are commanded to do. It's something Jesus shows us how to do, knowing how important it is for us. So he models it for us. He gives us this prayer like the disciples seek instruction in it because they know it's important. Even when their hearts are away from God right now, they know they need to pray. We need to work to the best of our ability to spend at least uh, at least one significant moment in the day in prayer. Like sometimes people are really good to do it before every meal. I'm not always good with that. Sometimes people do it before their quiet time. That's real great too. Have a moment where you're doing. We need to thank God for what he's done. We need to request aid for things that no human hand can solve. And we need to pray for the will to continue praying and worshiping when things don't go our way. For the things that cannot be solved, then God will not solve because they are not what he has commanded to happen. No one likes hearing that last part. Everyone likes yes, yes. Everyone likes to hear yes, I'll pray to God. And I'll get what I want, and we'll get to that in a moment. Like, that's not how these things work. Next up, we see that God's name needs to be glorified. There is no other name that deserves that respect. You don't hear Jesus saying, all right, yep, uh, you should praise my name alongside David. You should praise my name alongside Abraham or what have you. No, those are just men, and men are capable of great good and great evil, but God is capable of only good. So his name above all needs to be glorified. Now we get to this idea of daily bread. It is synonymous with the, the construct of having all of our physical needs met. So daily bread is the word used, but what it means is like shelter. 
is like having the ability to pay for things. It's like having the ability to eat, to drink and sleep and be safe while doing those things. It is okay to ask God for help in these areas. No one, no one wants to be in a position where they don't have these things. We take them for granted so much, but it's okay to ask for them. It is not selfish to desire to want to have our needs met. It is selfish and sinful to desire those things so that we don't have to work or to remain lazy and stagnant in life. I say that as a very lazy person myself. Comfort is okay. But when we remain in that comfort instead of doing the work, instead of going out to help, and instead of, instead of loving others, there's an issue. And if we're praying for that, God may not give it to us. And if he does, and we continue to be disobedient, I would be very worried if I were you. Because that means he's building up to something. He's a cooking to something up, and you don't want it. He is giving us the things we want to let us, as we remain in that sin, to then remind us of who he is when things go wrong. I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want it to happen to me. Don't pray for things to make yourself unavailable to God. Pray these to help aid you to seek out God. Like, look, it's a lot easier to do this mission if we have what we need when we come back home. If I know, you know, as poor as I am, that there's some ramen right, waiting right here. That means I have food regardless. It's easier to go out and go to class. It's easier to go out and talk to people about who Jesus is outside of this campus that I'm at right now. Because I know I have security back here. Pray for those things with his blessing to do his work. Now we see later on as well, there is no one we see in this, uh, this prayer who can forgive sins except for God. Even after salvation, we need to come to him to forgive us for what we've done in full confession of what we did while also forgiving everyone who has wronged us. Two things there. Everyone likes the first part of that. Yes. Oh, I, I need a savior. I, I need someone to, to just uh, come and, Forgive me for what I've done. Everyone here, I think, would pretty much agree, uh, outside of certain other people I can think of, that that is what we want. We want our sins to be covered. We want to be forgiven. But Jesus doesn't stop there in the prayer. He makes us also say we have to forgive the people around us. Who wants to say that out loud? I don't, in my sinful nature. I don't want to say that. I was like, Lord... They deserve everything you've ever said that would happen to someone bad. Like, let's just let it all down. Send fire down from heaven, please. It's like, no, it's missing the point of the great sins we were forgiven from. These people need that as well. Don't leave them out of your prayers simply because you're upset at them. Now we see later on in this verse about temptation. The Greek word that is used is parasimos. That is a word in the original Greek. It has a lot of different meanings. It's often typical with Greek words. I am not really looking forward to that next semester. <laughs> it can either mean like a testing or a temptation. There are more, but like for the purposes of this verse, we'll use these, these two. Here, it refers to the testing that would come from being tempted by the things of this world. We know God does not tempt us, as we find in James 1.13, that is from the NIV, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is not going to tempt you. 
God may sometimes lead us in a direction where there is a temptation there, not because he wants us to fail, not because he wants to screw with us, but he knows our hearts. And he knows sometimes if we just avoid certain things and they don't show up, well, of course, like (laughs) I'm not going to worry about stealing things. You know, if I never go to a department store and be like, man, I can't afford that, but I could just take this right now. Like so simple. It's like, man, I know I'm not supposed to take any of this food away before everyone else gets a chance to eat it. But if I just remove myself from the situation, nope, nope, I, nothing can happen. But if I'm staying around it, it's a sillier example, I know, but we're all children at some point in time. And yet it's right there. I could just take it right now and no one would know. But mothers always know. <laughs> and they punish you for it. It's the same premise there. We're going to have temptations come up in our lives. It's inevitable. So be ready. Pray for God to help us resist that instinct, our baser instincts. So we go to this example Jesus gives of the friend asking the other friend, like, hey, I've got this guest. I need I need help to show us asking in prayer to God, like, look, I have this need. Please, God, help. Please, God, help. He's doing this to show us we need to pray to God, number one. And number two, we don't give up. We need to be persistent if we're asking the things that he wants us to ask. We continue to ask him for aid for what we require in accordance to the desires of his will. And I know no one likes saying that either. Just because I pray for something doesn't make it good. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it in accordance to God. Like there is nothing inherently wrong with praying like, hey, I've got this person over here. They're suffering from this illness. God, can you please take it away? And if God chooses not to, that doesn't mean we made a bad prayer. That doesn't mean we weren't uh, seeking a good thing. It just means that that's we were praying in a moment for what God was not going to overcome. But we don't know that in the moment. But recognize what God doesn't want to do with the facts we have around us. We also see here the phrase, everyone who asks receives. And that has been misapplied so much by your more, goodness gracious, your, what's the word I'm looking for here? Your health and wealth gospel kind of people. Your if you just just you pray these things out loud, and at the end of the day, God will give you that car. He'll give you everything that you've ever wanted. All you have to do is just say, "God, give me these things." <laughs> this this prosperity gospel is it's so ridiculous. It's it's such an easy cultic idea. To bring in a Christianity because people we want these things. Like, wouldn't it be better if I had more money? Or wouldn't it be better if you know I, I had you know a family and children and all these wonderful things? Sure. I mean, it looks like that from the inside out. But why don't I have these things? Well, maybe it's because we didn't ask for them. We can definitely ask for those things. There's nothing wrong with that. Or it could be that God doesn't want to give them to us because He knows what we'll do with them. Or he knows that we are meant for something else. And if we have those things, they will distract us from where we need to be and what we should be doing. I need to come to him and say, Lord, I have these desires in my heart. Let me know if these are what I require. These are what you have in store for me. And say, there's nothing wrong with the desire to have more money, to get stuff done, to be more financially secure. There is something incredibly wrong 
with like I mentioned before, of just having that money being lazy and not using that wealth for God's purposes to help other people. So if you know in your heart of hearts that's what you would do, stop asking him. Whether it be money, fame, success, if he's made it clear that's not what he desires for you and I, we need to stop asking for it. Later on, he may very well give us those things. I mean, he could at any moment in time. There could be a windfall. Like someone could say, hey, I bought this lottery ticket, Christian, and I'm giving it to you. And I, I win the mega millions. You know, I don't know. It could happen. Probably won't. But at the end of the day, even if he gives us those things, we need to make sure we are using them correctly. We're not asking out of a sinful desire to have what is not ours to ask for or to impose our will on, on creation instead of his. We are not God. We'd like to think we are. We are not him. Don't ask God in prayer for things you know you don't need in your life. You know would make you worse off, even if it would seem initially like a blessing. So we'll move on from there to verses 14 through 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When a demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also was divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you stated that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, before we start anything, there is some debate uh, from scholars of whether or not uh, Beelzebul, which is the translation using ESV versus Beelzebub, which I'm sure most of you are more familiar with, is some kind of like a different demon working for Satan, or maybe even it could just be Satan himself. I, either way, the point is being made here. Jesus is consorting with demons is what the Pharisees are saying, which we know is very factually incorrect. It is ridiculous to say Jesus was aligning himself with them with either one of these. Because Jesus rightfully states that a divided household falls. Satan is a fool for rebelling against God, but not so much a fool to stab himself in the foot in this manner. By attributing Jesus's miracles to the power of hell rather than the power of God, we see that the Pharisees and the people were so far removed from God, so more aligned with hell than God like they proclaim to be. And that's astonishing. How could you be so close to Jesus and not see, to be that far, to have that veil still over your face? It's astounding. And I hate it, but that's just how it is. It doesn't matter what's brought before people. It doesn't matter the truth of what you say. Sometimes that veil is there and it can't be torn away because God hasn't allowed it. And those people still, even if, even if God temporarily removed it, would still make their own choices. That's who they are. They're never going to change. And I hate saying that out loud, but it's the truth. Instead, what this moment shows 
is that Jesus was proving his mastery over Satan by taking the people who once seemingly were assigned to Satan, and then instead Jesus frees them from the slavery and oppression that comes to them both physically and spiritually. Jesus, in his point of the strong man, comes in. Satan seems strong in this world. He seems like an unbeatable force. We see all the terror and devastation, all the sin running amok around the world, around people in our own lives, around our own life. And we say, how can we win? And Jesus steps in and tears him down piece by piece because he is the stronger man. Satan has nothing in his arsenal that is a threat to God. Even when Jesus dies, it was all part of the plan. Satan fails. We see in this moment, Jesus specifically speaks out against Pharisees and others and calls them out for being against him. Because if they were truly God's people and they were not Satan's, like they are in this moment, then they would be praising Jesus for his good works and following him rather than attributing his miracles to demonic magic. It's that simple. Anyone who does this is lost. They say Jesus was just a man. They say, yeah, he was good. Maybe he was magical in some way. And you know, people like that exist. They're telekinetics and what have you. And you know, maybe he was just some miracle worker. Maybe he was just a prophet. Like, misses the point of who Jesus is. Jesus was a miracle worker. Jesus was a prophet. But far more important, he was the son of God working against the powers of hell to establish the kingdom of earth on this kingdom of heaven on this earth to make us be able to overcome sin by repenting and coming to him. Saying anything less than that is wrong. And we go from there to verses 24 through 28. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he, excuse me, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus uses this story, this illustration of a demon being removed from someone's body as a way of saying, look, that act does not save them. Miracles don't save people. They can lead people to God, to his mighty power. They are displays of his might. They are a way of showing his power over nature, his power over time, his power over us. But it doesn't save someone. If we were to perform an exorcism and then we didn't speak the word of the God, uh, the word of God of that person who was being exercised, well, they would still just be as capable of being possessed as before. That's not the main point Jesus is trying to make here. But like you see that illustration, like, look, like say God gifted us with that ability. We cast this demon out. It's like, all right. High five everyone, then we move. Well, we've done nothing, really. That man, that woman is still lost. They, they still need Jesus. But we didn't help them because we saw a, spirit, uh, a spiritual problem and just got rid of it and then moved on with our lives. The same applies to a heart that has been spiritually exercised of past sins, yet the temptation to go back into these particular sins can increase as time goes on leading someone to end up in more egregious sinful actions to make up for time lost, not sinning in that way. Our hearts are deceitful. The same, was it really so bad when we were like that? 
when we were lying to people, we were scamming them, when you know, we were talking behind their backs, we were stealing things, you know, we were saying hateful, hurtful things. But was that was that really that bad? Nah, being around those people, they weren't bad influences. Like we were wrong for leaving them. The heart is deceitful above all else. And if we go back to those things, it's way worse, about seven times worse to do that because we know better. And yet we did it anyway, and our witness suffers as a result. But worse still is the metaphor he's making for the then current generation he's been speaking to. They heard his words, and some of them may have even changed for a bit. So yeah, sure, that makes sense. But then they went back to their old habits. The judgment for them would be worse because they had actively heard his words and then denied them later on, while other generations would never have that blessing in the same way. People born before all this happened never heard Jesus speak out loud. People born after, I have never heard Jesus, you know, in the same room as me, give, you know, a sermon. You know why? Because he's not there. He's ascended. But they did. They have no excuse when judgment comes and God asks, why didn't you listen to my son? He was literally among you and you denied him to his face. We also see in this crowd, there's a woman who very rightfully says that, you know, Mary is blessed to be the mother of Jesus, but Jesus also rightfully points her to the truer point of those who hear and receive the word glad, uh, excuse me, receive the word of God gladly, as they are far more blessed for doing so because they keep it. It stays in their heart. Mary was blessed among all women for being the mother of Jesus, but compared to someone who gave their hearts to him, who have changed their lives for the better, focusing on God and who he is rather than who they used to be, that is far better blessing to the world because they are going to reach more people if they're doing things right and bring them to Jesus. Let's go from there to verses 29 through 36. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be this to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest this light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus once again, speaks out against the faithlessness of the people around him. They showed up because they wanted to see miracles as magic tricks versus something that was a, a very mighty work being displayed around them. So Jesus refuses to show them miracles because it wouldn't lead to repentance and it wouldn't bring glory to God. Those are some of the purposes of miracles. God offers miracles to save his people to help them, to aid them. He parted the Red Sea. He stopped the sun for Joshua in the fight. 
against uh, the Canaanites so that they could get their job done. He brought down fire on heaven when Elijah called for it to consume the offering made to him. Those things were intended to bring glory to God, to show his people he loved them, that he was there to protect them, and that they should follow him. There's no point in making a miracle around people who will refuse to see it for what it truly is. As people all, de- all, all today say, well, if I saw that, then I would believe. It's like, no, sh- maybe. Because I mean, it happens. It happens that people, when they see miracles, they come to faith. But really, we have the reports of them. What makes that so different? Oh, because I see it, that suddenly makes it better? I, my view of the world is so much more important than the people around me? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. And sure, it'd be, I would love, absolutely love to witness a miracle firsthand, be in that room, see Jesus standing over someone you know, with a, a debilitating illness and him take it away, like physically see that happen. That would embolden my heart so much. But he's not choosing to do that right here. He doesn't need to right here unless he chooses to. But to them, he especially doesn't need to do it because there'd be no point. Miracles serve a point to bring glory to God and to remind his people that he loves them and cares for them. To do this to these faithless people would be for Jesus to waste his time. And God's not about that. Instead, what Jesus does is he again prophesies his own death using the metaphor of Jonah being in the giant fish for three days until he was spat out onto dry land as a way of of understanding Jesus' own death and resurrection after three days. As some scholars will say, Jonah actually died and resurrected to actually kind of um, further this metaphor along. But it's like, no, no, and make, and make it literal. Like, no, that Jonah was alive all those three days, uh, protected by God within whatever this fish was, whatever if it was a whale, what have you, who knows. So Jesus does it this way so that many people would believe after the ultimate miracle would be delivered but not the people who were listening to him then, as they would likewise hear later that Jesus had resurrected, had resurrected, but not believe it because of their already hardened hearts. There was no point in talking to them. It was over. It, was, it had been over a long time for them. Their entire lives, they had chances to say, oh, we believe. I see now that you are who you say you are. And yet they didn't. Don't be like that. And we continue this further with the idea of uh, the Queen of the South. This is the Queen of Sheba we get from 1 Kings 10, who she came from a very faraway place. There's debate about where Sheba actually is. It's not that important to this conversation. It, when we eventually get to 1 Kings, I'll talk about it because it's fun to speculate. But as far as this is concerned, she heard a story of a wise king. And what did she do? She didn't stay where she was. She went to confirm it for herself. That is a good way to get a personal experience out of this, to see with your own eyes, not the way we ask today. And so she serves as an instance of many Gentiles who will hear of the glory of Jesus Christ and come to faith as a result, while some of his people would hear that exact same message and deny it, further increasing the judgment against them for not believing the truth that they had heard. The same is true of the men of Nineveh, who repented of their sins once Jonah had preached the message of God that God had sent him to deliver to them, as they did what they were told to do, despite having no religious understanding or background with God. The people who should know better didn't. And the people who didn't know better did. It's funny how that works. It's infuriating how that works. And yet that's exactly what happened. They went to the synagogue every Saturday. They did. They had their Sabbath. They heard the word of God. And it went right over their heads because they refused to repent. 
Now, Jesus furthers these teachings he's giving right here by instructing his true followers to not act like these people and instead broadcast the change that God has made in their heart so that others can see it and repent and for others to see it and remain trapped in their own sin, but unable to say that no one warned them of the coming judgment. No one, unless you're in some uncontacted tribe, which I don't know how you're listening to this podcast if that's the case, in which case also welcome. No one has that right in this world that has never once heard the name of Jesus. Maybe if you live in a very repressive regime like China, you've never once heard the name of Jesus. But as we see in Romans, like we still have no excuse. We see creation. We know we didn't just get here by accident. We'll say other things. But that's not how it works. But we are called to be that light in the darkness. This means that you and I, we need to shine brightly and avoid sin and temptation because acting in an unchristlike manner destroys our witness to the people around us. Look, guys, I hate to say it, but we're all going to sin. Like, it's going to happen. It's unavoidable. But what we can do about all of this is that we can work in our hearts and minds in conjunction with living rightly with God to cast sin out of our lives while still recognizing that you and I, we are only human and it will happen again. This doesn't mean we use that as an excuse. It's like, oh, well, I'm just human, God. No, I talked behind their back today. It's like, you know, I just saw that video today and I just had to keep watching God, you know, even though I know it's wrong. No, it's not how this works. We don't use this as an excuse and keep sinning because it will be inevitable. Rather, you and I, we recognize our own weakness and we work to prevent it as much as humanly possible so that God's light shines from us and no one can deny it. It's like, man, Christian's so much different, man. He, he just, he looks and he acts different than the way he used to be. But maybe he just found a good place. Like, no, maybe he just found, you know, someone new in his life and he's hanging out with them. Like, no, the only answer could, should be the change God is making in our life. Because those things are temporary. Jesus is eternal. And we'll finish off today by going through verses 37 through 54. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with them. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people will walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers, excuse me, lawyers answered him. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us so, insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and so you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, 
who perish between the altar and the uh, sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is a, a very scathing part of scripture. Not a very fun one, but a very correct one. Jesus, we see, is continuing to hang out with people who denied him to his face. He did so, like I've said before, to give them no out when it came to being able to say that they didn't know what they were supposed to do when it came to salvation. It's like, Lord, Lord you didn't tell us what to do. Like, how, how could we know? Like, I should get a free pass. Like, no. Jesus calls on them to repent of their sins, to quit looking good on the outside and look good on the inside as well. <clears throat> we need to do the same in love. Our job is not to remind people that they suck and they're going to hell. Our job is to remind people that our best isn't good enough and that there's nothing we can do besides going to God and repenting from our sins. They may listen and they may not. Either way, you and I, we were faithful and loving to talk to them in a respectful manner. I stress that last part. You can say these things in a respectful manner, a loving manner. Learn how to speak better. If you don't know, find someone who can teach you how to do that. Too many times the message has been burnt upon delivery because of the words that were said that preceded it. I'm <coughs> sorry. <coughs> don't be that person. Be better. Find ways to get help. <clears throat> we also see here, the inner self can oftentimes be far different from our outer selves. That would say, duh. Well, yeah, sure. Everyone knows that, Christian, but do we? Is that how we really treat the people around us? Let's look at this a little further. Both should be as similar as possible, especially when it comes to our sins. Just because we can hide one sin a little better than others and be seen as righteous as a result, it doesn't make that belief in us as being righteous true. <clears throat> Look, open and honesty time. Like my struggle with lust and pornography is just as sinful as a marriage that very obviously ends in divorce or the homosexual couple engaging in sin together while thinking it righteous and good. None of us in that scenario are better than the others. All those things happen. Every single one of those things happen. Yet not a single one of them is a worse sin than the other. Not a single one of them is a quote unquote better sin than the other. <clears throat> All of what I said before was sinful. Every last one. Christians pretending to be righteous while gleefully committing our own private sins are terrible witnesses to the change that God has done in our hearts. Don't be like the Pharisees and don't be like Christians in the past who would decry something like the LGBT community while having affairs with men and women and then claiming it wasn't as bad as them. Oh, them. Well, they're so they're so flamboyant about it. Like, obviously, they are more sinful than I. It's like, well, well, they're having affairs, some of them with members of that community because they're repressing sinful urges themselves and then saying, oh, it's not as bad because like, I'm not out and about about it. Like, both are sinful. If you don't think either one is, we need to talk. Both can be covered by the blood of 
Jesus, both of them can do this. But don't make one more hurdle that people have to jump over when it comes to understanding who Jesus is and what he desires, simply because we said one thing with our lips and another with our actions. How many politicians, how many pastors have said, you know, <clears throat> homosexuality is a sin. And we find him in a scandal a couple of years later where they're engaging in that very same sin. They're like, yeah, pedophilia is a sin. Now we find all these disgusting photos on the laptops. And then people look and say, is that what Christianity is all about? Why well, want nothing with it? Well, why should they? <laughs> why should they care? If that's, well, if that's what really Christians are like, then th- nothing's changed about them. That's what it looks like. <clears throat> it doesn't matter the change God has done when it comes to this regard in our own lives. We need to look out to this world say, look, I'm a screw up. I admit I have done these things. I admit they are a sin. I admit they are wrong. I'd say, I declare they are wrong. And then when we do them again, we need to say, look, I'm human. I screwed up. I chose to do it. I chose to engage. Don't give up on yourself because you're having these thoughts that are leading you away from Christ, that are leading you away from what is right. Admit it. Okay? I don't like the fact that my mind wanders to lust, that I can wander to these videos, to these pictures of these very insanely attractive women. You know what? My mind likes that because I'm designed by God to appreciate the female form. I then abuse that to get what I want instead of what he desires. It's just as sinful. And I'm not here to pretend like it's it's any better than anything that's going on in your life right now. If I did, I'd be lying to you. And I'd just be making the situation worse. Now, some people out there say, Christian, you get a little too personal. Like, look, this is my show. I can do whatever the heck I want. And this is me being open and honest with you so that hopefully you can do the same with me. Sorry, I'm having a fit with coughing today. All that allergy. I'm so ready for spring to be over with. And even though it'll be hotter in the summer, at least the pollen won't be as active. All right, look, guys, as part of this message Jesus brings here, he also brings up <gasps> social justice. And oh no, we can't talk about that these days. You don't want to be, I don't want to be some liberal. I don't want to care about the people around me. Look, do you hear what you're saying? Like, look, the fact that we've divided that into a liberal conservative divide really irks me. Really irks me. Sorry, that coughing fit is still returning. We are called to be better than this. We are called to look after people. Jesus commands us, commands us to look after people, to love them as ourselves, to love God in return. The fact that the government has to have systems in place to provide welfare for its citizens is a major sign of the devastation that the church has left in its wake for not doing its dang job. These programs should not exist, not because of some grand notion of the government having too much overreach, but because it shouldn't be the government's job to do it. It should be ours. The fact that these programs exist shows just how worthless we have been when it comes to promoting justice around us and protecting the orphan, widow, and sojourner among us. That is not an optional law. That is not an optional thing for you and I to do. We are commanded to look after them because guess who else is going to do it? You think the government really cares about them? It's a temporary salve. That's all it is. 
No one cares about their about where they are in life. No one cares about their soul. The government doesn't care about that. And in fact, so many people that get into it, they're just doing it to increase their own money, to increase their own wages, to make themselves look righteous. Look, I'll admit this. <laughs> I'm a very poor seminary student. <laughs> Not all of us have the money to help. And in fact, uh, some of us may even be the people who need aid from the church. But because we are not unified on how to do this, and not all churches who proclaim Christ are offering solutions to the societal problems around them, we are stuck where we are now. And that is something the world, that is something that the world mocks us for. And they are rightfully able to do so. But guys, if your church doesn't have a single system in place to reach out to the local community, or to missionaries abroad to aid them in some way, you may be in the wrong church. I say may. And I say may, perhaps like no one has ever had this idea, and you may be the first in the church. And it's, it simply never existed before because no one spared a thought for it out of ignorance. Like that's, that's a, not the best reason to give, but it's a reason. It makes sense. If the latter is true, then it may very well be that God has called on you to be the one to get it started. We are all called to serve. Find out what that is and make this world a better place. One act of service at a time. But don't do it like the Pharisees, to be done in a way that makes you look righteous. Do it out of love for others, just like God commands. <clears throat> like we also see here that the Pharisees, the lawyers, the teachers... They, they stood proudly where their ancestors had murdered the prophets and denied their messages sent from God and thought that they were righteous now and not in any way, shape, or form exactly like their ancestors had been. I said, yeah, sure, maybe they were worshiping idols, but like we were, we're better than them. No, that's not how this works. Not a single one of those prophets, prophets before was the Messiah, but they were repeating the exact same intentional choices while Jesus was literally sitting right beside them. <laughs> the irony is palpable, like you could cut it with a fork and, sh and show it to their faces, and they still would have denied that they were doing it. Don't be like that. Be better. And... <clears throat> Uh, one thing of clarification needed here for my English-speaking audience, which is the vast majority of you. By saying that they had the blood of Abel to Zechariah on their hands, and I know how easy it is to assume this, Jesus isn't making an A to Z comparison here. You know why? Because Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic don't have the same A to Z formation that English does. They're very different languages. English wouldn't exist in its current form until many years later. I've heard pastors say, let Jesus say, yep, yep, prophets from A to Z. That's exactly what he's talking about. That's exactly what he meant at the time. And like, sure, we can say that now. And like, it, it makes sense to our ears, but it doesn't make sense for the context of the times. There is no A to Z. I mean, at best, maybe an alpha to omega situation, as I understand Greek. God help me. <clears throat> Look, but what he's actually doing is that he's using a comparison of how the Hebrew Bible was constructed to make a point. The Hebrew Bible, as it was formed as opposed to ours, started with Genesis, and it ended in Chronicles. So it goes from Abel 
in Genesis 4, all the way to Chronicles, which if I'm remembering correctly, was one book for them instead of two like it is for us. And we get all the way to Zechariah, who is murdered in Second Chronicles 24. <clears throat> but instead of listening to Jesus' words, instead of doing and having a moment of, man, he just rebuked us. We should repent. The scribes and the Pharisees plot to make Jesus say something that will get him condemned because then they don't have to make any ch chances, uh, some changes about their lives. Like they know he's done nothing morally wrong, yet they hardened their already hardened hearts to make them all think that they're still in the right to do this. <clears throat> Learn from their example and be better. And that's it for Luke 11. I'm so sorry for the way I kept coughing around there. These allergies just really came to kick me into behind a little too hard for my, uh, uh, what sort of looking for here? Gosh, I can't think. Yeah. Uh, services, something like that. Yeah. I I'm not happy. <laughs> just put it that way. Oh, my mind's a blank. Okay. Guys, thank you for listening again today. Let's get things back on track. If you can, you, you survived this whole bit of madness. <clears throat> just go ahead and leave us a five-star review to help increase promotion of the podcast across whatever platform, uh, podcasting platform you're on uh, if you're interested in my fiction writing you can find my works at www.starvingwritersguild.com or on amazon by searching the name mc ashley if you're all interested in some further studies some very solid studies into the bible and its teachings then check out the other members of the anasal ministries podcasting network you can contact us at let nothing move you podcast at gmail.com i'd love to hear what you have to say and as well with all that in mind god bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine and allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.